0: But knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name jesus we are continuing in our advent series through the birth story of jesus in the gospel of matthew last week we looked at the genealogy of jesus and now we look at the events leading up to the birth of jesus in the opening genealogy that we covered last sunday we see the names of mary and joseph But in today's section, we see their responses to this truly unbelievable news. Mary is going to have a child who has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. She's going to be the mother of the Christ child. And those three people are where the focus of today's passage is. Mary, and then Joseph, and then Jesus. And so that'll be the three headings that we're going to structure this message around. And with that, we'll jump into our passage and we'll look at the first of our three people, Mary, beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So, first we meet Mary. I've mentioned before that of the four Gospels, only Matthew and Luke both give stories about the birth of Jesus. Luke's Gospel gives a lot more information about Mary. Matthews has more of a focus on Joseph. The passage says that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal was a formal engagement. It's still practiced today in some circles of Christianity and Judaism. Betrothals were arranged by families. In Mary and Joseph's day, the engagement period would have lasted about a year. During the betrothal period, the bride would still have lived with her parents By our modern standards, Joseph and Mary would have been very young, most likely both still teenagers. It's important to remember it was a different time and a different culture. They had a different concept of adulthood and coming of age, and life expectancies were shorter. The groom was older, more established. As I said, betrothal was more formal than our modern idea of engagement. In our society, if two people are engaged, someone can break it off at any time for any reason. Not so in first century Judea. To break off a betrothal, you had to have a formal writ of divorce. You couldn't just decide you didn't like someone or found someone better. It was a binding commitment to marriage. In our passage, the text says that before Joseph and Mary came together, she was found to be with child. This is clearly a reference to before they had consummated their relationship, Mary was pregnant. Matthew says she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, it's pretty amazing. Up until the resurrection, the virgin conception is the most significant event in human history, and Matthew mentions it almost in passing. Nothing fanciful in Matthew's language, he lets the event speak for itself. There's no need to oversell something so miraculous and unprecedented. Before we move to Joseph, I want to talk for a moment about Luke's account because it does give some additional details that are worth acknowledging. I don't have a slide for this, but Luke 1, verses 26 through 35, also describes Mary's pregnancy and her response to it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth In Luke's gospel, Mary is told about the child she will carry. She asks the obvious question, how is this going to happen? Both Matthew and Luke say how it's possible that Mary could be with child, that the child has been conceived of the Holy Spirit. God is at work in this. Humanity could not have made its own savior. It needed the intervention of God. With that, we come to our second person, Joseph. And when we pick up with Joseph, He knows that his betrothed is pregnant, verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. With Mary pregnant, Joseph faces a dilemma. What does he do? They lived in a small town. Inevitably, Mary was going to start to show. Carrie and I used to live in a small town, 850 people. Word gets around. I remember when Carrie was pregnant with Robbie, sometimes people in town would just say, hey, congratulations. And I'd say, thank you. And be thinking, who are you? (laughs) Word gets around. And so a pregnant Mary would make it appear as though either Mary had been unfaithful to Joseph or that Mary and Joseph together had violated the betrothal custom and conceived a child together out of wedlock, which wasn't true. Now, in our day... We live in a society that has pretty relaxed sexual norms to our detriment, but this was not the sensibility of first century Galilee, and Jewish teaching at the time essentially forbade marrying someone to whom, who had been unfaithful to you. So, take it all together, verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Really, I think that's pretty honorable. Joseph did not want to cause a huge public embarrassment for Mary. He didn't want to make it a spectacle. He didn't want to humiliate Mary. But the text also says that he was a just man. Now, what does that mean? Because Joseph was a faithful Jew who adhered to the law and teachings of the Old Testament, it meant that he could not just ignore her apparent sin. So Joseph initially does not see it as an option to marry Mary. But he doesn't want to shame her either. So he just wants to try to make the breaking off of the betrothal as painless as possible for the both of them. Quick side note. Sometimes people will note that Mary's apparent adultery would have been a capital offense and that she would have faced stoning. That's partially correct in the ancient world, in the ancient Jewish world. It's true that the death penalty for adultery was prescribed in the Old Testament. However, in the first century, under Roman rule, it seems that it would have actually been pretty uncommon in practice. Even when the Jewish leaders sought to crucify Jesus, they had to first ask permission of the Romans to even do it. They couldn't just do it on their own. Back to Joseph... There appears to be a sensible course of action until Joseph gets greeted with some unexpected news. An angelic messenger appears to him in a dream. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Lord can quickly change our plans. As Matthew's gospel heralds the news of the Christ coming into the world, he records several angelic encounters, specifically in dreams. That's a means of divine communication which we see at times in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, we see only in Matthew's gospel. Angelic encounters in the Bible are often these glorious, terrifying, all inspiring events. But in Matthew, the angelic visitations are always merely meant to communicate a divine message, and that's all what that Matthew focuses on. The angel identifies Joseph as the son of David. This will be the only place in the Gospel of Matthew where anyone other than Jesus is called the son of David. It also reminds us of the significance of Joseph's lineage in the incarnation, because it is Joseph who is a descendant of David. It is through Joseph that Jesus is is connected to David. And so Joseph is told not to fear taking Mary as his wife. The reason he needs to be told not to fear is that the religious and social expectation of the time would be that Joseph would not take Mary as his wife due to her apparent adultery. For the town gossips in Nazareth the explanation that Mary is pregnant with a child that had been conceived via a divine miracle is not exactly the easiest story to believe. It would have been just as hard for somebody in the first century to believe that this was possible as it is in modern times. They knew where babies came from. So to marry Mary is to have to deal with the social ostracism of marrying an apparent adulteress but Joseph is told not to fear. Now, just because he's told not to fear taking Mary as his wife, that does not mean it's going to be easy. We don't know a ton about the life of Joseph before Jesus was born, but the Gospels do give us a few snapshots, and it seems like it was pretty hard. In Luke's narrative, when Jesus is born, there's no room for him. A story that, Lord willing, I'll preach in a couple of weeks, but... When Jesus was just a baby, the king, a man named Herod, has heard about the birth of the Christ, and he's jealous, and he seeks to have Jesus killed off. The family is forced into exile to flee from Judea and to hide out in Egypt. So we see an inhospitable world, danger, exile, hardships. Church tradition holds that Joseph was already deceased by the time that Jesus began his public ministry. But here Joseph is told not to fear. Why? Because he is following the will of God. But again, that doesn't mean that following the Lord will always be easy. The disciples followed the Lord, but they had lives of difficulty and persecution, ultimately leading to the martyrdom of all but one of them. We celebrated Thanksgiving last week. I always think about the pilgrims who came to this country in the 17th century. They came here in order to live out their faith. And they probably never could have imagined the legacy that has extended into America to this day, the rich religious history that exists in this nation. Was it wrong of them to come? Was it a bad idea for them to come? No. But half of them had died by the next winter. They had hardships. I think of the great missionaries over the centuries, people who were serving purposes greater than themselves but the centuries of missionaries who faced persecution and death for that calling, the work they did, the challenges they faced. Father Damien was a priest who served in a leper colony in modern-day Hawaii. He served people who were the outcasts of society. He himself contracted leprosy in 1885, but he continued to serve the colony until he died of the same disease four years later. Maria Taylor was the wife of Hudson Taylor, Perhaps the best known American missionary of the 19th century. He ministered in China. Maria herself had been the daughter of missionaries. Born in Asia, her parents both died when she was 10 years old. She was sent to England to be taken care of by family, married Hudson when she was 16. In China, they faced opposition, persecution, financial hardships. Of the nine children she birthed, only four survived to adulthood. She herself died of cholera when she was 33. That's so often not what today we picture as the Christian life. We want to believe in a prosperity gospel that sells us on the lie of just do good and everything in your life will be good. The problem is that it's not true to reality and it's not true to what the Bible teaches sacrifice, difficulty, hardship. Why would anyone want that? Because of the great God we serve, because of the great Savior we have in Christ because of the great cost that he paid for our forgiveness. God gives grace. His power is perfected in weakness. God sanctifies us through difficulties. As we serve the Lord through challenges and walk with him, it is also an opportunity to grow with him. The Bible doesn't teach that we just have to have faith and it will always be easy. The Bible teaches to trust in God even when things are difficult. In the eyes of the world, It makes no sense. But God is the only thing that truly matters. And if we have God, and if all we have is God, then we have all we need. Again, in the eyes of the world, that is laughable. It is worthy of mockery. Why would a good God allow his most sincere followers to suffer so greatly? But it is a byproduct of doing ministry and serving God in a world that has fallen. We have a Savior who can identify. Jesus went to the cross. He suffered. He was betrayed. He was mocked. In life, everything that's truly worthwhile and worth doing involves hardship and suffering and challenges. Marriage is a great blessing. Marriage has its difficulties, its difficult seasons, difficult conflicts, but it's worth it. Having kids is a great blessing, but it's hard. You're trying to civilize a sinful person. Now, no one forces you to get married. No one forces you to get married. No one (laughs) forces you to raise kids. You choose those things, even though they're difficult. I think of those great missionaries. They had hard lives, but they're the lives they chose. They could have walked away. They could have left the mission field. At the first sign of danger or death, they could have given it all up. But things that are worth doing are hard. I've always been fascinated by the Navy SEALs. I've read several books by SEALs. They talk about their training. And one of the really interesting observations I've heard them talk about when they talk about the challenges of SEAL training, Hell Week, they call it, that they're basically up for five straight days with just a few hours sleep near a constant mental and physical stress. That's what it takes to be a Navy SEAL. And yet, it's completely optional. And I've heard accounts from SEALs talk about the training and they bring up that you're going through it, you're colder than you've ever been, you're more tired than you've ever been, you're in more pain than you've ever been. And you're also fighting this constant temptation to not just quit, because no one makes you do it. They can quit at any time they want. The instructors aren't gonna to try to talk them out of it. In fact, part of the psychological game is they're constantly trying to talk you into giving up. They're going through the hardest thing they've ever done And they've chosen to be there. In life, all of the challenges bring their own blessings in spite of hardship. And truly living for God, in spite of the difficulties, brings the blessing of knowing God and growing with God and living for the glory of God. It's not always easy, but it is always worth it. In the Gospels, there's a story of Jesus and his disciples. They're on a boat, and they get caught up in a tremendous storm Why were they on the boat? Because Jesus led them there. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites are at the Red Sea. They're on the banks of the water. The Egyptian army is coming towards them. Why are they there? Because that's where God had led them. God is not always leading us to what is easy, but he is always leading us to what is right. Our world has bought this unbiblical lie that in this life, you're always going to be led to something really great. Not always. Sometimes you'll be led to something really hard. Sometimes people suffer. Sometimes people die. It is in eternity and in the presence of God when everything is ultimately made right and perfected. But in life, there are trials and challenges. The good news is that we have a Savior in Christ who is with us through it all. And so Joseph is told to fear not, not because it's easy, but to fear not because of who God is. As we continue in our passage, Joseph is given one of the great blessings in all of human history, that he would be the parent of the son of David. Verse 21, the angel says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means the Lord's salvation. Jesus has a special name that points to his ministry in the world. Joseph would not be able to choose the name for this adopted son. The name was given. The angel's elaboration that he will save his people from their sins points again to the ministry and purposes of Jesus. Jesus came into the world to save us. Now, it's easy for us to take that for granted. But in the first century, in that time and place, most faithful Jews believed that the Son of David would come primarily as a king who would have military and political conquests. That was their idea of the Messiah. The reason why Jesus actually came was to save people from their sins. He came not to conquer with an army, but to go to the cross. We come to our third person of interest in this passage, and certainly the most important, the Lord Jesus Himself. Continuing in our passage, verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Verse 22, Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew makes similar statements throughout this gospel, where he will point to something in the life of Jesus and point to where the prophets of the Old Testament had prophesied about it. This is the first of those. Matthew does it about 13 times in total, but five of those prophetic references come in the first two chapters. Matthew's gospel is very much grounded in the Old Testament. That's not to say that there aren't a lot of Old Testament references and allusions in the other gospels. There are. But Matthew especially likes to look at the events in the life and ministry of Jesus and show that they were prophesied about the Messiah, centuries earlier. And so, Matthew gives the precursor before referencing the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, when he says in the passage, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, the book that's referencing the book of Isaiah. It's a prophecy that comes about 740 or so years before Christ. I think it's worth taking a couple of moments to really look at this verse in its Isaiahic context. I'm going to try to limit myself to about five minutes. The prophecy originally came at a very dark time in Israel's history. It's around the year 735 BC to be specific. The nation was walking in sin. They had a king named Ahaz who was not a godly king. And they faced existential threats from three of the surrounding nations. Those three nations were Assyria, who was the regional superpower... This was at a time when Israel was divided into two kingdoms, north and south. The southern kingdom is where the monarchy that led to Jesus was ruling. Northern Israel and Syria had formed an alliance against Assyria. So you have Assyria, who's a threat to everyone. Southern Israel refuses to join the alliance with north Israel and Syria. And so those two nations respond by wanting to go to war with southern Israel. In Isaiah 7, a few verses earlier, verses 4 through 8, King Ahaz is given a prophetic word that he doesn't need to fear because those two nations will not be able to conquer Israel. It was southern Israel who was the true kingdom and had God's promises. Ahaz just needed to trust the Lord. Verses 10 and 11 When the king is given these words from God, these promises, the Lord then invites Ahaz to ask for a great sign of God's proof. I struggle to think of any other time in the entire Bible where God asks somebody to ask him for a sign. 7-11, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But what's equally amazing is Ahaz's response, verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. So God says, ask for a sign. Ahaz says, no. Why? Because he doesn't trust the Lord. Absent from the book of Isaiah, but in 2 Kings chapter 16, we learn that Ahaz actually takes the gold and silver from the temple and uses that to pay off the Assyrians. He doesn't trust God. He wants to control things his way. Now, this isn't really the point of this sermon and none of us are kings of nations. But how often do we so desperately try to control the situations in our own lives rather than trusting God? The Lord is gracious to Ahaz and gives him a sign anyway, verses 13 and 14. He said, "'Hear then, O house of David, "'is it too little for you to weary men "'that you weary my God also? "'Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. "'Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, "'and shall call his name Emmanuel.'" Now, one thing that always gets debated with biblical prophecies is the relevance and understanding to their original audience. Is this prophecy only pointing forward to Jesus and therefore meaningless in Isaiah's day? I would argue that the prophecy has a double fulfillment. It meant something originally and then has a greater fulfillment in Christ. Because the sign which is given further elaborates on some of the events which will happen in the life of this child. Isaiah seven sixteen, Before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So that's speaking in Isaiah's day. I'm also almost done with this little five-minute aside. What this verse is saying is that the two kingdoms who are opposing southern Israel are going to be conquered while this promised Emmanuel child is at a young age. Move to Isaiah chapter eight and what do you see? A baby is born. It's the son of Isaiah. And so he's the first Emmanuel, Jesus is the second. The word Emmanuel in Hebrew means God with us. And in the Bible, it's really functioning more like a title than a name. Nobody in the entire Bible actually has the first name, Emmanuel. The first child represents God with his people as he preserves Israel under Ahaz, even in the face of their faithlessness. The second Emmanuel, Jesus, is the greater Emmanuel because Jesus is God with us. The first Emmanuel is an example of God's grace. As God lets northern Israel be conquered, he saves south Israel for another century and continues to be gracious in spite of their continued sin. The second Emmanuel, Jesus, is the ultimate example of God's grace as he has come into a world that continues to sin and disobey God, but he offers forgiveness and love. But there's also a sense in which this first Emmanuel in the book of Isaiah is insufficient, that the prophecy is pointing to something greater which would not happen in Isaiah's day. We see that in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 9, another passage that's well known at Christmas time. In Isaiah 9, the prophet Isaiah points to a great king who will have a never-ending kingdom. It points to a child who will be born and rule on the throne of David. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so that could not have happened in Isaiah's day. That's what Jesus ushers into the world. That's what Jesus fulfills. And so Jesus represents this Emmanuel prophecy of the Old Testament. He is the true representation of God with us. We come to the final two verses of the passage. The angel of the Lord has told Joseph not to fear taking Mary as his wife. Verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph is obedient to the Lord. We see the faithfulness of God. Joseph, the son of David, takes Mary who is pregnant with a Christ child to be his wife. Verse 25 says that Mary did not that he did not know Mary until that she had given birth to a son. What that's saying is that Mary remained a virgin until after Jesus was born. After he was born, though, there's no reason to think that they did not consummate their marriage, uh, especially when the New Testament does make multiple references to Jesus having siblings. At the end of the passage, it says that when the Lord was born, Joseph did name him Jesus as he had been commanded to do. So we see in these last verses that Jesus comes as Emmanuel, but he's given the name Jesus. And in those two names... We see who Jesus is and what Jesus does. He is Emmanuel, He is God with us, and He is Jesus. He is the Lord's salvation. He is God with us and that He invites us to be with Him. He's the Lord's salvation and that He saves us from our sins. He's God with us and that He came into our world. He's the Lord's salvation and that He was rejected by our world. But in his rejection, he died sinless so that the sinful could have their sins forgiven. The message of Christmas is meaningless without the cross because it's not just a quaint and cozy story, but Christmas invites us to remember Emmanuel, the God who came into our world to bring the Lord's salvation and the Christ who brought the Lord's salvation into a dying world so that we could have life. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a gracious Savior, Lord. At this Christmas season, may we enjoy so many of the blessings of the time of year, but above all of that, may we remember the gospel and the Savior who came into our world, God with us, who lived a perfect life, Lord, but who also went to the cross, who died and rose for us, so that all who believe in him, who trust in him, who call on his name, can have forgiveness and grace and everlasting life through Christ the Lord. And In his name we pray. Amen.